Welcome to Speak Sex. I am your host, Eve Eurydice, and today's guest is Abraham Hack. Um, he is uh, a, a, a multi-culturalist. Uh, uh, Abraham is a linguist. He also designs uh, curricula around the world. Uh, he has been an instructor and, and a adjunct at NYU for years working on pivotal new programs of education that involve uh, the languages of the world. Um, he has also been an expert in the history of the reestablishment of the state of, Is- of Israel and the Arab-Israeli conflict ever since. Um, so welcome to the show. I can, I'm going to call much. you Abe. <laughs> Abe. Abe is what everybody calls me, and okay. so that is the most uh, the most common name that good, I go by. Good. Yeah. So you've lived. You grew up living in the Middle East. You were born in Jordan. Grew up living in the Middle East and Europe. Came to America young, like me, at 17 to study, and. Um, I, I do think of you as, as a polymath. We, we've had a, a couple of conversations that, that kind of like impressed me with the span of your knowledge. So I think more than anything, any of the official titles, you, I think you're a knowledge seeker. So that's why I have you here today. Uh, and, and, you know, I look forward to kind of covering as much of what you know as we can in an hour. <laughs> um, that is... That is a good characterization, yes. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, you, I mean, we met as artists, uh, and, and I love the fact that we call our work art because, you know, uh, uh, an artist is like traditionally a freedom, fi- freedom fighter, you know, and, and, and an alchemist of knowledge, right? So uh, I'm glad that you, you know, I, I'm impressed that you call yourself that when really you're an academic. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, you know, y- you and I are, are both alarmed by what's uh, happening in the world today in, you know, 2022. And there is a feeling that we're headed toward a catastrophe. Um, so I, w- I want to start with that. I want to I wanna get your opinion on what's happening. Well, um, I... I honestly, it has been a wake-up call for me, and uh, it is difficult for me uh, not to think that we are heading to something horrible. Not, uh, very few things make sense. I think a lot of people share uh, that feeling, but uh, you, a majority, I think, resist it because... Uh, They don't want a catastrophe to happen, and the power of wishful thinking is such that what they don't want, they want to deny. You know, so uh, and but it's 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 impossible. I mean, th- institutions are behaving in such a way that we are not familiar with. Uh, major uh, relationships of trusts of trust have broken down in the past couple of years. Uh, personal ones and institutional ones. Uh, we have never experienced such uh, 
you know, lockdowns and uh, it was it was like as, as if the world had plunged into a state of war without actual armed conflict. And now that there is armed conflict, it seems like uh, people are, I mean, those same institutions are in fact trying to uh, fan the flames as opposed to calm it down. Uh, there is uh, almost willful escalation. And uh, as I said, the, the, the feeling that I and many, many people get is that there is, uh, you know, a program of, uh, a program to create some sort of a permanent crisis or a permanent mm. series of crises mm -hmm. in order to justify extraordinary measures by the powers that be, by the authorities. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, you know, I, it has many parts. It has the pandemic part. It has the conflict with Russia part. It has the, uh, you know, it has the social unrest and social violence part. Uh, it has many aspects, mm -hmm. uh, but it, they all seem to lead to a program of intensified control, mm -hmm. more complete control. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the scary part is that once, you know, they invest, once those powers invest so much time and money in it, it's mm -hmm. hard to imagine that they would quit if there is resistance. So that's yes. where... Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. I mean, I, I that's the feeling that, I, that I'm getting as well. It feels uh, that we're moving toward an impending apocalyptic clash you know and and it's um if we you know if we could if we could for a moment like stop thinking of ourselves as the actual living human beings you know a vulnerable you know flesh and blood human beings that are the parts of it <laughs> it's almost like our original thesis um you know who we were uh, for at least the entire agrarian era, right? Which was the time that we had language. So the time that we had consciousness, the time that we have our, you know, records of um, broke into antithesis after the industrial era where, you know, people moved countries for work and a lot of the institutions gradually broke down, you know, like, uh, you know, marriages, we knew it and, uh, patriotism as we knew it, right? And, and I mean, countless traditions, you know, uh, procreation, etc. We got to, like, you know, that nuclear crisis where we realized that we might all be self-annihilated. <laughs> um, and after that, there was, like, the explosion of scientific, quote-unquote, progress. And now we've entered... In, and now in the continuation of the digital era, right, we're in the in a continuation of the industrial era, we're in the G digital version of the industrial era, um, yeah. which is only like exacerbating that self-alienation and that like manic, you know, manic quest for an identity because we've lost it in the process of like, you know, trying to catch up and make money, right? Um, yeah. Uh, under that, under like the the the, the pressure of like the authorities, the, those very authorities and institutions that that you're mentioning, 
uh, that, you know, that, that seem to not be on our side. So it feels that we're living a moment of like the extreme decline of the empire. <laughs> and there will be a synthesis that can only come, a synthesis will need to a new thesis, right? But it can only come through like a terrible clash that will bring everything down and, you know, there will be a scapegoat, you know, a little bit like, you know, when like Christ appeared and we went back to like counting time, you know, from, from zero again. <laughs> um, yes. But that's the dark ages, you know, it wasn't that simple. It wasn't like we all became enlightened uh, agape Christians, like, you know, I was immediately usurped by the authorities, and then we right. like went back hundreds, I don't know, if not more, years in knowledge. So, I right. right? Yeah. Well, it's it's always the power. I mean, regardless of what what happens in the minds of the humans, the power dynamics, you know, very basic power dynamics continue to assert themselves. And, uh, you know, the ideas kind of modify this and take the shape of, the, of, of, of whatever forces are operating on the scene, but they don't stop the forces. And uh, so this is, you know, this is a continuation. The, the, the difference today, the difference is that the, out, the reach is global. And so we are, mm. it's a, a qualitatively different dynamic because mm. we we have no place to run to, mm. you know, especially mm. in the United States. I mean, if, if this first, I, I think a, a globalist project cannot, um, cannot be successful without the inclusion of the number one industrial and military power in the world, which is the United States. The... Mm greatest resistance to that uh, project is here in the United States and and so the great the greatest clash is going to be here uh, mm. and uh, but but the and so if there is if if we if this country becomes like lines up with the rest of the countries to for for this sort of what I think is essentially an anti-democratic, uh, corporatist uh, project, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. then then the, no uh, no other country will be able to withstand the onslaught. Uh, right. And uh, so it has it. It is all here, and and the difference. What makes it different than all other previous uh crises in history and inflection points in history is that this is a globalist one truly globalist not not like the uh, uh, hellenistic right. uh, alexandrian right. empire or like the roman empire or right it, it is they they really this time have the wherewithal to integrate every single aspect of life into a digital control apparatus uh and localize it in some one spot where a number of people who can be counted on the fingers of two hands can dictate everything that happens. You know, it will trickle down and there will be some modifications, but this is, you know, this is the final game, I think. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they use the, you know, they, I, I, again, who, I don't want to say they because I have no idea what I'm referring to. 
But, yeah. you know, it, there is the feeling that um, they use local conflicts to to frighten everybody, right? Of and course. to, to so, you know, to confirm that control. And this is happening now in Ukraine, which I have, you know, which I have found heartbreaking. Historically, there is not that, you know, there isn't that huge of a difference between the Ukrainians, at least in the eastern part of Ukraine, of what's now Ukraine, and the Russians next to them. Well, this conflict has made it, it has exa- you know, has made them like generational enemies now. So it has guaranteed that they will hate each other, you know, for 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 generations to come. And that's what, yeah, and yeah, it's heartbreaking. It is. It's. It's also. You know. I am aware. I am something. I'm. I'm. I'm constantly doubting myself by saying the following. Uh, I'm always asking myself, what is, what is my information ecology? Everybody has an mm. information ecology, right? Mm. And so, when we think about things, mm. when we are uh, in a position, when we're arrogant enough to think that we have a clear picture of something, uh, we usually, it, it is always the case, let me say it again, it is always the case that the, what we don't know is greater than what we know about any particular topic. Oh, Even yeah, for sure. I, I am a trained linguist who spent decades studying this, and I, what I know is, is, is a fraction of what I don't know. Uh, a, a, a physicist who spent 80 years of his life studying physics knows, reaches that realization that what he is dealing with basically little bits and pieces of a great picture that can never be obtained or, wrap, you know, have a, 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 a single mind wrapped around it. Yes. And, and that is in the best of cases. That's when no one is trying to prevent us from knowing. Like a physicist, no one is trying to prevent a physicist from finding more about the universe. But in a situation like where politics is involved and human society is involved, Mm -hmm. there are actually people who are actively trying to misinform you by two main methods. One, by actually pushing false information on you and by a larger method, which is called lying by omission. The greatest lies in the world are lies of omission. They tell Mm -hmm. you one, they tell you only a part of the truth and you can chuck that part and it turns out it's true, but you don't mm. know the other part of the truth that completely changes the overall image. Mm-hmm. So what we know about what is happening in Ukraine is a, you know, we're, we, what, where do we get it? We get it from the mainstream media. We get it from uh, the social media at times. We get little bits and pieces and we mm-hmm. don't know what's happening. I always value the uh, the little bits you know of, of of information that seems to contradict the main narrative not because mm. I not because it, it might be truer than the main narrative but because the main narrative um, I know that the main narrative is usually trying to suppress alternative narratives. Right. And so I am going just like when I, so I give, I give greater weight to the negative in a story, to the contradictions in a story, to the cracks, just like 
let me give you an, an analogy. When you go buy, if you want to buy an antique or if you want to buy a car or anything you want to mm-hmm. buy, mm-hmm. what you, 95% of the car or 95% of what you're trying to buy, 98 or 99% might be perfect. But you only you always go and focus on the part that is cracked. You know, you say, what is wrong with this, right? Because you don't want that could that could disable the whole car, you know, or that could make the, the vase that you're buying completely worthless if it has a crack in it. So we privilege the negative in a in a picture, in a, a, an information picture or a data mm-hmm. picture mm-hmm. Uh, for a good reason. Why? Because that narrative could devalue the entire um, the entire idea or the entire narrative very much like one small hole in a balloon could deflate the entire balloon. If every story has two sides and the two sides appear to be opposite, you know, everything includes its opposite. Like that's just how everything is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I come, I mean, this is the story. You, you mentioned that I was born in Jordan and that I speak on Israel. This is one of my biggest wake-up calls is that I was raised in an environment that demonized not only Israel, but the, the Jews in, in, in particular, uh, or in, in, in general. And it took me, you know, and I, was, I grew up in a, an educated family, in a privileged environment, uh, and I had access to international media. I grew up in the era of mass communications with TVs and radios, and I was multilingual. So, you know, I had all sorts of uh, inputs from various informations, yet it was not until I came to the United States uh, that I discovered that much of what I thought I knew for sure about uh, Israel and about the conflict in, in, uh, in the Middle East was false. I mean, it was like not only mildly different than what I had been taught, but the opposite in many cases, that the villains were actually the heroes and the heroes were the villains. And, and it was, it was a, like, it is that implanted in me a, a, a deep and fundamental skepticism, uh, which I think is the only appropriate attitude of an intellectual. I think an intellectual as someone who is uh, someone who values, who, who has intellectual integrity, who, who values knowledge and who is a truth seeker, his primary in, uh, posture must be skeptical posture, which means anything that comes at you, you cannot take it at face value. You have to First, make sure that the facts are true and then measure them or put them up against other facts and see if those mesh. And if they don't mesh, you have to privilege the stuff that doesn't mesh. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, the, 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 that, biggest, uh-huh. the, the biggest clue that the Ptolemaian, Ptolemaian astronomy was not the correct picture of the universe was small mistakes. You know, things didn't jive in small parts. You know, they had to adjust it here and adjust it there. But those small adjustments, it worked 98% of the time, but those 2% of the time was more that were more valuable 
informationally speaking, mm-hmm. than the 98% that were work, weren't mm-hmm. working fine. Mm-hmm. They worked fine. Mm-hmm. Those two things that did not work told us that the entire system was wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and we had to wait for, you know, uh, for 2,000 years until Copernicus came to tell us that the whole model is wrong, people. And our best clue to the whole model is wrong is that the fact that it, it was off a few days here and off a few days there. That's it. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. But yeah. I wanna I wanna backtrack for a second and ask you. So how how did your views on the Arab Israeli uh, conflict change? What did you learn? Well, I you know I came here uh, I came here when I was seventeen and. I think the very first semester I arrived, I arrived in Cambridge, Massachusetts to go to school there. And I was invited by a friend from Chicago for Christmas. You know, I was by myself and he said, you don't have, you're not going home. Why don't you come with me for the holidays to Chicago? So I went with him to Chicago. While we were in Chicago, I had heard about the University of Chicago. Milton Friedman was still Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go. But because it was holiday, most of the campus was closed there, too. But there was one one building that was open, which was the library. So we went to the library, and in the library, uh, there was a this uh, reference uh, librarian. She was a graduate student. And I immediately, reckon, you know, like we looked at each other, and we knew we were from the same part of the world. She was an Israeli, and so we had an uneasy kind of uh, ex- friendly exchange and she challenged me on a point of, of fact and you know I took I took myself as a seriously as a young intellectual and I thought my you know my moral stances are based on on facts and and history and so I took her challenge and I actually you know researched it and one thing let an, I, I discovered that my earlier assertions were actually wrong and uh, you know so can you give me like an example well i said she said she said something maybe we will have peace someday in the middle east i said yes we will i'm sure but when uh, that you know when when the uh, ex- expelled people expelled arab people have been returned to their land or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she said do you know that none of those none of the arabs were expelled before the um the outbreak of hostilities i said of course that's not true you know they were being systematically expelled and and ethnically cleansed and all. she said no there were there was i said what who do you think all all these refugees are that are sitting in jordan and and syria and lebanon she said i I, I'll research this. She said, if you can find me a single instance of an Arab village that was attacked by Jews before the outbreak of hostilities at the end of 1947, because the, the, the war started immediately after the partition resolution. It did not wait until the declaration of the state of Israel. The Arabs attacked. She said, if you find one instance of that, send it to me and I will eat my hat. You know, I will admit it. So I actually took her address and we stayed in correspondence and I went and researched and I could not find, you know, I read the standard histories 
And then I read the Arab histories, which I, fam- I was familiar with. I read the sympathetic histories that were written in English. Uh, and I couldn't find, I still couldn't find anything. I, I remember making an international phone call to a, an uncle of mine who was studying at the University of Cairo. And he agreed with me that, with my general statement, but he also couldn't provide me with a single example, right? Uh, and so after months and, you know, maybe a year of actually looking at all the standard histories and failing to find a single instance of expulsion by Jews of Arabs from their villages prior to the outbreak of the war, I began to, I asked myself, if, if this one basic fact, this is the pillar of the, uh, of the Arab narrative, of the Palestinian narrative. Uh, and I said, if this is, if this, what I thought was a certain thing is not true, if I can't find evidence for it, what else is not true? So I started reading more and more and did it surreptitiously because any showing any doubt about the prevailing narrative to friends or family would have gotten me, you know, uh, very, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they would have pushed back, you know, they would have. Yeah. So I did it. It was blacklisted. Of, <laughs> exactly. So I, it took years of me of, of, uh, tedious mm-hmm. and slow and lonely research into the conflict uh, as, as if I were like peeling the skins of an onion mm-hmm. to discover what's underneath. And mm-hmm. then, so my attitude changed first from like shock and disappointment that I was, that I did not know so much and mm-hmm. that I was misled so much then to some sort of a, a resignation and then to I started reading more about Israel and that turned into some like admiration that this you know this thing happened and these people pulled themselves together and created this democracy in the Middle East and in, despite an extremely hostile environment mm-hmm. then uh, that admiration finally ended in in love I mean I'm just like I am like completely uh, taken by the miraculous uh, creation of the state, which has no precedence in all of human history, by the way. Mm-hmm. There, is, there is no other, I am a linguist, as you know, and mm-hmm. there is no instance ever of a people, a community, a nation that disappeared, that was completely disappeared and then lost its national being and then uh, and was expelled from its own land, lost the use of its language, and then came back to that same piece of land and revived the use of the language. Before 1900, no one was speaking his, uh, Hebrew at home. They, it was a liturgical language, very much like like Latin is a liturgical right, language or in Byzantine. the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Byzantine, or Greek, or what exactly. Mm-hmm. But these people revived this biblical language that st- it was actually stopped being spoken mm-hmm. in, in the 5th century BC, oh, really? by the way. I After the that. first exile into Babylon, wow. they destroyed, the Assyrians destroyed Jewish presence. And so when the Jews returned, they started, they were speaking Aramaic, uh, which was the, 
lingua franca mm-hmm. of the Levantine Middle East. Mm. And so, but 2,000 years later, they're actually using language that, you know, was had been 2,500. There is no precedent in human history for this achievement, for reviving a, ling- a cultural language or a national language after it had uh, receded into only ritualistic and uh, catechetical use uh for 2000 more than two millennia so uh and then so i started visiting israel and i was amazed at what i saw and i i always say to people don't listen to me if you want if you think what i'm saying is unbelievable and and crazy and amazing all you have to do is go visit israel and you will see what an amazing creation uh, this place is, it mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. amazing. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I've often thought that there was a programmatic or an intentional sabotage in giving them, uh, you know, their, their homeland, right? It, like the, the price for the bloodshed, right? <laughs> the, the consolation price for, for their extermination in, in, in a place where they were, by definition, hated and would never be accepted. You know, like, there you can go be amongst your enemies. The displaced Palestinians were not allowed to make lives in Jordan. They were kept intentionally in camps. They were not allowed to make lives, you know, diaspora lives, the way that, like, so many of us have made diaspora lives, you know, at the same time. In, in countries all around the world, they were intentionally, it seemed to me, kept in that place of like expectation of return, right? With that myth. It's like, you know, my grandmother, you know, grew up uh, in, in Smyrna. It became Izmir in 922. You know, uh, f- family and friends and whatnot were like decapitated by the, the Turks, you know, of Ataturk, right? She swam the, the six miles, the same six, six miles or seven miles that like the, the Syrian refugees, you know, like, to Lesbos. Uh, yeah, and came to Lesbos, which, you know, from my bedroom on Lesbos, I see Turkey, I see that land. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but my point is, she, of course, there was always like, you know, the, 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 the typical kind of like, you know, agrarian nostalgia for the past, you know, the lost Eden, you know, everything was so great back then, whatever. But it never occurred to her. She never said uh, in, in all of these endless stories of what life was there then. Uh, and I had family also, you know, there was family stories from a diaspora in Alexandria or whatever, you know, were like exiled by Nasser. There was never a sense of we, you will go back, you know, you just here temporarily and you'll go back and you'll get what your, your house is. It was kind of an, an, you know, it was implicitly understood that this is how history happened. We, you know, we're making a life here, we're having children here, and from now on, we're from here. And that was not given as an alternative, I, I feel, to many of the Palestinians in order to perpetuate this uh, existential, you know, like the Philistines against the, you know, the Israelites kind of, of, that's right, that's of right. <laughs> you know, uh, thousand-year-old, conflict you know and it, and it's really the same people so um yeah it, it does it does like have a sense of um 
intentionality that somewhere yes. somebody you know uh, i don't know which you know which side but the arab world has become an extremely worth, wealthy world you know in some parts of it um and yet that wealth has not been used to give better lives to you know the palestinians who yeah for all kinds of reasons were displaced i agree with your assertion that someone is definitely trying to perpetuate the conflict someone is keen to keep the the war going and the conflict going not not all of the parties some of the parties have come to realize uh, to to take a different course like you know the the gulf states and maybe now saudi arabia and jordan before that and egypt even before that but there is there's still a a group of arab states and external actors outside of the arab world mm-hmm. who are keen to keep israel in check and to keep it busy with this uh uh you know with, with this conflict but i the other part that i though would diverge from you on is that the analogy between uh diasporas uh, uh like jewish diaspora and the greek diaspora and what is happening with the arab uh the arabs of palestine is is not a good analogy why uh-huh. because the greeks and the jews had national cultures with unique languages unique territories unique cultural heritages the arabs of mm-hmm. palestine were part of the arab world in general they did not have a national body they did not think of themselves as separate mm. they rejected openly any uh, special uh, national designation mm. uh, up until 1958 oh uh, i didn't know that Mm. Yeah yeah so for example during there was the appeal commission that came to kind of uh, mediate between the arab and jewish communities in 1936 1937 they openly offered uh you know a, a palestinian national body to the arabs and the arabs completely rejected it and openly and articulately said that this the notion that palestine is separate from the rest of syria or the levant is a zionist idea we rejected completely oh i the, see i see yeah yeah they did not they did not think of themselves as a national body this notion of being called palestinians happened after the war at, when they were already in arab countries and it is the invention of nasser nasser in egypt mm-hmm. and it was actually mm-hmm. the result not of his enmity towards israel but of his enmity towards Jordan. Jordan mm. immediately uh, took control of the what was then the West Bank and of the Palestinian uh, people who are the, the Arab Palestine Palest, Arabs, that's what they were called, mm-hmm. and uh, to, like assumed responsibility for them and gave them full citizenship. It's the only Arab country to give the arabs uh, who lived uh, in the area of mandatory palestine full citizenship mm-hmm. nasser was a committed anti-monarchist and and socialist who mm-hmm. who saw the hashemites in jordan and uh, mm. al saud in, in in arabia as his enemies and it's mm. it's known as the arab cold war mm-hmm. so he wanted to make to create 
opposition to King Hussein and the Hashemites in Jordan, as he did in Iraq and Syria and other places, he created the Palestinian identity, created the Palestine Liberation Organization in the Arab summit of 1964. Mm -hmm. And so all of this is a, the Palestinian identity is a post-factum national identity that has no historical roots, zero, zero wow. historical roots. When Hajj Amin al-Husseini, who was the leader of the Arabs in mandatory Palestine, he established a newspaper, I think in 1926 or 27, he did not call it Palestine. He called it Southern Syria. He said, Surya al-Janubiya, that is the name wow. uh, of, the, of, the news, of, of the newspaper. They, when you said a Palestinian, before 1948, when somebody said, oh, he's a Palestinian, it meant he was a Jew. It, the only people who claimed the title of Palestinian before 1948 was Jews. The Arabs completely rejected it and assumed it only when it became uh, a, a useful tool in their uh, fight against Zionism and fight against the state of Israel. So that is the background. So to say Greeks, I am a, a Greek recidivist myself. I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I told you, I have shared with you that I still dream of Asia Minor being, you know, re becoming Greek land again. And uh, maybe it will happen through the European Union with natural immigration. I don't know what's going to happen, but I have not emotionally accepted the expulsion of Greeks from their homeland in Asia Minor. I am still suffering <laughs> from that thing. Yeah. I, honestly, I, not, I know it's impossible. I know that Turkey is much stronger than Greece, and Greece is like 8 million people, and Turkey is yeah. like a whatever and all of that. Yeah. But I am, it's, still, it's, it's, it's a knot in my heart. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little hurt mm. in my chest yeah. that I cannot accept. So Yeah. Um, and where do you but, think of actually speaking of which where do you think of Erdogan now? Is he a, a despot like Nasser or is he becoming a king like the Saud family? <laughs> what is whatever, he? Whatever he is, he's he's uh he's a uh, you know the title for him often is like a, a strong man, you know, because mm. Uh, he's he's genuinely popular in Turkey. You know, more than half of the population actually likes him because he advocates for Turkey and he takes a makes a strong stand for the country. But he's also isolated Turkey. He has uh, international uh, Islamist ambitions, and he has massive support in the Arab world. And he is accused of trying to revive the Ottoman Empire and Ottoman uh, hegemony over the Mediterranean. Yes, he intervenes. Yes, yes, he, yes, he intervenes yes, in yes. Uh, in Libya. He intervenes in he's with in the Gaza thing with the Israeli Arab Israeli conflict. He intervenes in Syria. He intervenes in Iraq. So he is uh, his ambition are are he has imperial ambitions, oh, not yeah. just Turkish nationalists. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 so, yeah. You're right. Usually, yeah. usually these people destroy the country that they use as the as the central uh, base of their ambitions. Like Hitler destroyed Germany because he wanted an 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 uh, an intra. He, you know, he he wanted a racialist uh, commonwealth. 
mm-hmm. uh, based on Aryans, not on Germans only. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, er- Erdogan is of that type. Nasser was also a pan pan Arabist who mm-hmm. was he destroyed Egypt because oh, yeah. he, his ambitions uh, exceeded Egypt. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's yeah. where Erdogan is. Erdogan is bad news for Turkey, and at some point. Uh, you know the po- the negatives will exceed the positives, and uh, we will see what happens. Yeah, but, we will see know. what happens. I am with you. You know, I always say I am a a pacifist, a hundred percent. I see all sides. You know, the same way as you know, as victims of the overall culture. I you know, I don't, I don't. You know, if there is a mass shooting, I consider the shooter equally victim as the victims. But <laughs> I would like to see Constantinople become Greek again, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, you know, it goes against all my sayings. But yeah, on the emotional level, there is there is something there. (laughs) So my my, you know, my next question, of course, is in this time of crisis, right, where we don't have a centralized source of like truth and so much seems to be. Um, heading toward, toward, you know, some sort of like catastrophe, as we said to begin with. Um, and America seems to have lost her way, both internally with like the collapse of trust in the democratic, you know, functions and externally with, you know, her like insistence of playing uh, the part of like the bully, right? You know, she, so America was supposed to be like the enlightened nation. We came here to get away from the bullies. And now, you know, America is like the bully of the world, right? So it's not a good moment. But you did, I do know that you, you, you have said that even though you have been a militant atheist for most of your life, you feel like inexorably headed into some sort of, you know, deep religious commitment, uh, which I feel that that may be what we all, you know, well, many of us uh, will find our, our comfort in, you know, at a time like this. So would you talk to me a little more about this, you know, religious impulse? Sure, sure. I've had it all my life. Uh, before I get into it, though, I, I yes. want to just clarify that I I also have a deep love for this country uh, on the personal level, but also mm-hmm. uh, on, uh, you know, philosophically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on the personal level, because it adopted me and it gave me mm-hmm. uh, the, a good life and it, it embraced me. It did not mm-hmm. only uh, accept me, it embraced me. It gave mm-hmm. me, I have, I have never regretted becoming an American. Yeah, and it's not that I, it's not it's not only that I immigrated to America as like I think of myself as a uh, an immigrant from the Middle East or anything like I I now it's it's my sole identity. I've been here long enough mm-hmm. uh, that I do not I my I have my loyalty to this country and to this culture and I think mm-hmm. it saved my life. I think I would have probably died uh, or perished in some horrible way had I not come to the United States. This country mm. had never disappointed me. So I want to say this about it. And philosophically, yeah, I, I really agree. Believe, I agree. I agree with yeah, you. I, I, feel I, I do way. believe. Yeah, I do believe that we are also, I, I do believe in American exceptionalism and that it is not just a, 
a psychological viewpoint uh, from by individuals who are grateful like us. Mm-hmm. I believe that America is objectively an exceptional nation mm-hmm. in the sense, I and too. I give you a formula for it, the formula, a material formula. Uh, the formula is that no other country on earth has given so many people so much freedom and so much prosperity in in human history mm-hmm. so if if you go at each one of these variables and test it against what we know from history so many as many people have, has any country ever given hundreds of millions of people so much freedom where you can travel from one end of the continent to another change move across social mm-hmm. strata start a business uh marry uh, across races and across, uh, you know, cultures, all of that. And then prosperity too. Has there ever been so mm-hmm. many people lifted yeah. from poverty? As So all of that stuff. So that's America. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, you, you know, and especially yeah. coming from a culture where, you know, as you know very well, you know, who your fathers yeah. are and your grandfathers yeah. are and your great-grandfathers yeah. are, uh, makes your destiny and there is no way out of it. You know, (laughs) it's amazing that in America you're allowed to just, you know, rebirth yourself. And, you know, yeah. And so I I, I think that it's never been done before. And I think that it has led us out of what, like, you know, feminists at least like me call the patriarchy, for sure. So, yeah. So having said that. Yeah. Uh, so on the on the uh, religious front, as I said, even when I was, I mean, I was on the left, generally speaking. I had uh, been a child of of my environment and um, ac- largely, you know, academics, uh, overeducated uncles, aunts, and uh, and uh, parents. I gravitated towards. Uh, you know, the socialist model of things. And I looked at history at the time, you know, I grew up in an era where the Soviet Union was in the ascendant. And if you looked at the world map, uh, you know, anywhere, you saw the red spreading. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, up until it collapsed, it was spreading. It was Mm -hmm. like spreading in Afghanistan. It was still spreading in parts of Africa and Asia. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it seemed not only my sympathies, but it seemed like the, traje- the trajectory of history was with, with, with a, was a socialist trajectory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, then just about the time when the, what the Germans called Die Wende, which is the change, the big change, happened, I actually went and 1989? Finished... Exactly. Mm-hmm. I was in that, between 1986 and 1989, I was, I went and finished an undergraduate degree in Vienna, Austria. Mm-hmm. And Vienna, as you know, uh, is like, used to be a neutral. Austria was neutral. It was not part of NATO. And Vienna, because it was so close to Czechoslovakia and Hungary, was a place where immigrants from the Soviet, uh, from the Soviet bloc came. So we would stay up drinking what they called green wine, you know, uh, in Vienna bars, and I am the socialist arguing against the uh, uh, social, socialism's refugees, tell, trying to convince them that socialism is better for them, and then comparing it favorably to what the situation in the United States is, 
you know, like I would say, how much of your income do you pay in rent? It would say 5%. I said, I pay 35%, you know, and he's, they would say to me, you know, I let's switch passports. I'll be happy to pay the 35%. You can come to, to Prada and pay the 5% and we'll switch passports and you'll be happy under socialism and let's go suffer under capitalism. <laughs> so by the time I came back to the United States, I had really changed my mind. Just before the Soviet Union collapsed, just before the wall was breached and fell, I began to realize that um, that my ideas about the world were not sound about what is happening in the world and um, that I needed to adjust. So they began to, I began to modify my ideas. And part of that was the place of religion in my life. And before then, I, it, was, it was a rejection based on, on kind of a thoroughgoing scientism, what I call a scientism, mm -hmm. which is not just science, but a, a religious-like religion -like belief in science. That if science does not give you proof of something, that that thing that it doesn't exist, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I scoffed at all religious ideas, and I satirized them, and I completely... But still, I was, you know, I was not completely convinced that all of this was random, you know. And then uh, science itself, I took lots of courses, even though I was studying linguistics, I took lots of courses in math and analytical chemistry to the, you know, irritation of some of my teachers because, you know, I was taking electives in analytical chemistry instead of taking electives in psychology and speech communication or something like that. So at the end, uh, it was a very slow and but deep conviction in the existence of a first cause, in the existence of God, in the existence of a, a founder and creator of the universe. But that belief was separated from the existing traditions. So I can... I became an atheist and a, and a, and a sure, certain atheist. I mean, I'm sorry, I became a, a religious person and a deist or a theist, despite the fact that I was not affiliated with any church and I'm still not affiliated with any church. Hmm. You know, I left Islam, which is the religion I grew up in, mm -hmm. very early in my teens. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remained unaffiliated I, I do remain unaffiliated until this day, but I've had over the past decade a very, a very profound engagement with the Bible, with the Christian Bible, mm -hmm. and I I came to understand its meaning in different ways, in mm -hmm. not just allegorical. Uh, but also in 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 moral terms and in psychological emotional terms, and uh, you know, I I just have now I'm much more comfortable. I have to tell you, I'm much more comfortable with people of simple faith, on the personal level, than I am with uh, high-sounding intellectuals. I am, and I. On, also on the personal level, I trust the people of simple faith more 
it, it, when we wrote, when I wrote my will with my wife and all of that, the, the people who were in line, uh, you know, wanted to be our uh, trust executors and all of that were all just like Christian evangelicals. And people, it puzzles people when I say that because I am, as I said, I'm, I'm a, I am. A, a, I, I will never abandon my scientific framework mm-hmm. for thinking. Mm-hmm. Never in the world. I mean, that is how I think about the world. And uh, but I also understand that faith is not doesn't sit on top of science or underneath science, but mm-hmm. in a separate space from it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. that it allows it allows, and that the conflict is really between fundamentalists. The conflict is between religious fundamentalists and literalists and atheistic fundamentalists and literalists. And the greatest space is between these two groups. The greatest space for both science and religion is within, is in this area, you know, is between these two groups. But there are scientific literalists and fundamentalists or scientific liberalists and fundamentalists, and there are religious liberalists and the fun- fundamentalists, and both positions are untenable in light of science. The Codex Sinaiticus, <laughs> for example, yes. right? You yes. know, so yes. it's just so fascinating. Um, uh, I mean, on a linguistic level, right? Just uh, you know, figuring out where the names and the words and how much goes into every name. Um, you know, and, and like the mysticism of language, right? Uh, and That's then right. of course, like the, the exegesis of it afterward. It's, you know, I can lose myself very happily, um, in, in th- that type of reading and which is theological, you know? Um, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that that, 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 that is still something that's the work of like a scientific mind. Uh, you know, I don't think that that, that type of study is unscientific, you know, and the Judeo Christian, at least like, uh, you know, material, um, which, you know, includes like anyone from like Sabatai Zevi to, um, you know, to the, the, the writers, you know, the, the, the first you know, the papyri writers, right, of the first Greek uh, texts, you know, who discussed, like, the the version of um, Armageddon. Um, I I think, you know, the great battle, right? (laughs) Al Al something, Al Kubra, or whatever. In in any case, it's just all, um, to me, you know, fascinating, uh, in a way that feels that uh, as if it uses the mind in a similar process as as science, you know. So that's why I don't find them to be an antithetical at that level. Yeah, that's that's right. And science should not prevent us from speculating on what science cannot right. encompass yet. You see what I'm right. saying? There yeah. is. The, the, the limited, the, the suffocatingly limited view of science, which says if you don't have evidence, then it does not exist, which is, which, what is the formula usually that it, 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 it equating 
uh, equating absence of evidence with evidence of absence, right? Mm-hmm. Where you say there is no evidence for this, it means it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that you haven't found the evidence yet, that maybe you cannot even comprehend the evidence because you're dealing in, in you're, you're thinking about the world in, in Newtonian uh, terms, you know, uh, in 3D terms as opposed to in 4D terms or 11D terms as uh, string theory now projects uh, the world to be. So it means, you know, as I said, there's an arrogance about excluding other possibilities uh, that has now been attached to science that I reject now. I used to do it also as a young, ignorant man, and now I do not do it. Now when somebody says, gives me a, a, what seems like an outrageous idea, I do not flick it off like this. I say, okay, what is he trying to say? And how could this, is it possible at all? Even if he does not have evidence, is it possible at all? I do reject harebrained ideas in the end uh, because of logical impossibilities mostly, uh, but I do not, as I said, I don't, I don't make this uh, arrogant mistake of equating what we don't have evidence for yet with what does not exist. Yeah? yeah, which is many, many of the people now, many even, you know, luminaries, people whose works I have read for years, like Richard Dawkins and uh, uh, mm. and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Hitchens and uh, all those famous militant atheists. I've read their works and I like I I I idolize them, but I now realize that that position is really kills the human human curiosity kills it it, mm. it trashes human intuition we mm. our intuition is worth something you know yes before that's beautiful we, before, yeah that's beautiful yeah. before yeah. we before we find evidence for something we have to search it or yeah. research it and before yeah. we research it we have to sense that it is there we have to intuit that it exists already and then otherwise we won't be curious. You know, you, you won't go searching for something that you don't suspect exists. Only our suspicion uh, will lead us to it. And sometimes we make mistakes, sometimes we go astray, but we should never suffocate or choke off the intuition that it seems to, seems to be universal in every culture. It seems to be in children. It seems to be every in every in every organism, actually, not just human being. It seems to be in animals. If animals could communicate to us, I think they will communicate that they know that this is not possible without some sort of uh, of a some sort of of a final cause or primary cause. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Which I, is, cho- I choose yeah. to surrender to that one. Thank you, Abe. Uh, that was beautiful. So, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening, everybody out there. And uh, until next week, keep speaking sex, which also includes keep speaking nature, keep speaking life, keep speaking uh, each other, uh, keep speaking skepticism. (laughs) 
And yes, what we don't know is always greater than what we know. If I could make love incessantly, I would be God.